Uh, one thing that uh, is very uh, apparent, and uh, at this time of the year, there's a lot of color. We, uh, we like color at Christmas time. We decorate with lights. My, I have some memories from when I was very young, and it was fascinating to see a Christmas tree with all those lights. And uh, even clothing, you know, usually somehow red is a prevalent uh, color and I think you, you women at some time during Christmas season you're going to wear something red that just seems to be the way it goes even the Christmas baking somehow has to be sprinkled with some uh, green and red little extras uh, we wrap our presents often with uh, uh, tied with colorful ribbons and uh, sometimes we do a tour of the city to look at the lights. I remember while we lived in Winnipeg, it was almost like an annual pilgrimage for a lot of people to drive to a certain location where that household had just made a big project out of their decorating. It, it was like uh, going to a, I don't know what you call it, museum or uh, you know, a tourist attraction for sure, but beautiful, very creative. And uh, I guess you know, there, there is something appropriate about it during this special season. Well, the text that we're looking at, that I read earlier, is preceded by an expression that uh, talks about making the doctrine or the teaching attractive. Let me just refer you to uh, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Paul says, teach slaves. That was the culture there. There were slaves that were Christians. There were slave owners that were Christians, and they were supposed to uh, treat each other fairly. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Make the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Uh, other translations, uh, that they may adorn, beautify, so to speak, adorn the doctrine or the teaching. Uh, ESV has adorned the doctrine. RSV has so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. And the word attractive or adorn, ornament, uh, was used, for example, of the arrangement of jewels in a manner to set off their full beauty. Now, I take it here that it's not about making something beautiful, but beautifying what already is. In other words, bringing out the full beauty of the teaching, of the doctrine. And here he's, uh, he's, he's uh, tying that in especially to, to the slaves, but he's been talking about different groups also. Earlier in the chapter, he talked about el elderly women, he talked about uh, young men, and then he talks about slaves. 
And uh, so as he finishes the section, he says that they might be attractive, that they might somehow beautify, bring out the full beauty of the teaching. Well, which teaching? And then that section that I read earlier, he goes into what we might call the full story of the advent of Jesus into the world. Uh, Notice the main points of the story. Uh, Verse 11, grace has appeared, and I take that especially of Christ coming into the world. Uh, Verse 14 is atoning death. It says he gave himself, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. That would be uh, his death and resurrection accomplished that. And then verse 13, his coming again. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And so it's like here, he's telling the whole story. But the challenge is that those who are committed to the story, those who are in the story, and they are to live in such a way that the story is made attractive. Now, if that can be expected of Christian slaves at that time, how much more can it not be reasonably expected of us today as members of his kingdom living in the kingdom of this world? Can we beautify Can we enhance the beauty of the story? And as we look at this text, there are three characteristics that ought to describe his people, us. And I think when you look at those and unpack what those descriptions really mean, it becomes apparent that, yes, we will beautify, we will enhance the beauty of the story. And so I want to talk about being a people who have been taught and who are being taught. Being a people of hope. And then being a people who are, it says here, eager, eager to do what is good. But to begin with, a people that is taught. He says that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God. And then he goes on to say it teaches us people who are taught. It's interesting here that, uh, that here he, he links the teaching that I think comes from the whole story, from the whole modeling and the teaching of Jesus, and he calls it the appearance of grace. Grace. The advent of Jesus into the world, described as the appearing of grace. And as you know, grace means undeserved kindness. It means gift. And God is actually a God of grace, but in the coming of Jesus, grace has been personified. And it's become a visible, historical event. Grace, God so loved that He gave. That's grace, the gift of His Son. And uh, Jesus personified grace in His dealings with people. It's very significant that He gravitated especially to the people who were outcasts. You notice that? And they to him, people like tax collectors 
and prostitutes and those uh, despised Samaritans. The kind of people who the religious did not think deserved his time. And clearly those that Jesus disagreed with most often, even pronouncing judgment upon them, were people who wanted to block the flow of grace. It's like they wanted to create a stroke in the flowing system. The Pharisees. And they couldn't, they wouldn't budge from their legalistic and rule-oriented expectations that they had from others. Grace. He personified it. And of course, their salvation is of grace, which we receive as a gift by receiving the, the gift of Christmas, who is Christ himself. Well, here he talks about coming under the teaching from the appearance of grace, the teaching that comes from Christ and his personification of grace. Coming under the teaching, not just academic doctrine here, but it's about living, living differently, living by the standards of his kingdom. And uh, specifically here, he talks about uh, being taught and learning to say a no and to say a yes. Specifically say no, say yes. He says saying no. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's part of what we are to learn in this school. And you know, saying no, learning to say no is a very important part of Christian living. And here he says, say no to ungodliness. Say no to impiety or irreverence. Say no also to worldly passions, those cravings which tempt us to go against the standards of God's words. Be learning to say no to those. And uh, you might say, well, why do we need to even hear that? I mean, we're Christians, we're born again, so, 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 so do we still have those cravings? Well, yes, we do. And uh, these are not just the obvious physical sins but the more subtle cravings, such as wanting more. Uh, think of the last couple of days, all that uh, emphasis and uh, newsworthy stuff, it seems, related uh, to that uh, frenzy of Black Friday. <laughs> Where does that come from, you know? Wanting more, more stuff, or wanting more power, and uh, I, you know, I'm speculating in my mind that maybe, maybe the worst sin of all, and, and, and I'm just speculating, okay, but it's something to think about. Could it be that the most, the primary sin, the foundational sin, is that craving for power, wanting to control people to my own satisfaction, or the drive to to be just a little more important than the other person. Hmm. I was thinking of that line, the wonderful line in that last song we sang, Riches I heed not, or man's empty praise. See, that's rec the songwriter there has recognized that those are cravings for riches, and for man's empty praise, cravings that would take us away 
learning to say no to those kinds of things. And you know, when it comes to learning and training, uh, learning to say no, think of, think of child rearing. One of the most basic things to learn, and when children never hear the word no in those early years, expect that they will have trouble saying no in their later years. But the reason that we say no, it's not all about negative. The reason we say no to certain things is so that we can say yes to better things. He says grace teaches us to, then he goes with the positive, the things to say yes to, self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And there are three directions here. There's the self, self-control. Mastery over the most difficult person of all to control. And yet self is the only person, ultimately, that you can hope to control. And then towards others, upright, living in a way that is just and righteous towards others. And here he's been addressing slaves that they are not to, they're to submit to the masters who are in authority over them. And they're not to steal from them. Upright living in a way that is just and righteous towards others, and then Godward, godly, looking upward, being devoted to God in reverence, obedience. And all of this, this yes and no, uh, relates to the redemption that he talks about later here. In verse 14, he gave himself for us to, to release us, rescue us from wickedness, and to purify himself a people. He didn't die just to save us from the penalty of our sins, but he wanted to rescue us from being controlled by our sins, released. And then he says, positive, to live in this way, godly lives when in this present age. And oh, how we need to learn to say both a yes and a no in this present age around us. John has something very startling, really, to say about who we are in this present age. 1 John 5:19. we know that we are from God. I wonder if he had read this text, maybe. We are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In this present age, as belonging to God, we are called to live by the kingdom of God's standards in the very contest of all the darkness and tragedy in this present age. Paul also, in Colossians 13, uh, verse 1, uh, verse 13, he says he has, chapter 1, he has delivered us, transferred us from the domain of darkness, taken out of the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. I wonder, are we demonstrating that we have really been taught by grace, that we are reflectors of grace, saying yes and no, but at the same time exemplifying grace, quick to forgive, going the second mile, caring about even the enemy, generous with our own rights, at the same time caring for other people's rights. Part of what it means to be adorning the doctrine, 
bringing a posture of grace into every situation into this present dark tragic age adorning the doctrine enhancing its attractiveness by being a people who are taught who are being taught but secondly being a people of hope he says while all of this while we wait while we wait for the blessed hope when Jesus came into this world his people expected that that would be it the Messiah would reign even after his resurrection his apostles asked him Lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel and here a few years later the leaders of the still the early church I would say they realized that wasn't the plan but Jesus would remain at the father's right hand for an indefinite period of time and then he would return but in the meantime they we are asked to live in anticipation while we wait and that expression depicts an eager expectancy looking for the personal return of Christ with an attitude that will welcome his coming and uh, when I see the horror out there the tragedy uh, terrorism and other things and senseless murders and I mean those are the things that really highlight evilness somehow it becomes easier and easier to say Lord come come soon welcome his return when he will put things right here it says his glory is coming or the coming of the glory he is the glory he is coming he came when he came into this present age he came in lowliness born in a manger visited first first of all by uh, second-class citizens shepherds looked down upon nobodies they're the first ones to greet him but when he comes again he will come in a blaze of glory visible everywhere Matthew 24 Jesus compares his coming again to lightning for as the lightning or as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west so will be the coming of the son of man we await that's what we're waiting for the appearing appearing in glory of him Paul calls it the blessed hope hope that gives direction encouragement a sense of well-being that all will be ultimately well because we are a people who can look beyond the horrible present a people with a sense of destination regardless of current difficulties illness sorrow even terminal illness the whole aging process uh, we have purposeful destination I think we're also aware here all of us are aware we've experienced it if we're a little bit older we've already experienced it that uh, tragedy and sorrow does not take a recess during the Christmas season planes crash cars collide earthquakes shake the earth people die in hospitals even <clears throat> during the Christmas season Marty and I out of our four parents three of them either died or were dying during the Christmas season one writer says my ideal Christmas includes 
clean snow, warmth, singing, peace, and joy. It has no room for snow splashed with the blood of human suffering. It crowds out nakedness, loneliness, and fear. My ideal Christmas. Then he goes on to say how wrong it is to see the unhappy scenes as intrusions, even at Christmas. Instead, they should help us understand what Christmas means. God did not come to a perfect world. He came to one that suffers. So often people will say when something sad happens at Christmas, it's so sad, and it's like they say, especially at this time of the year. But when you think of it, why not? That's the kind of world he came into. And it's because of all that darkness that he needed to come, and he has come, and we are there. We represent him in the context of darkness. Here's another note that describes our present reality. It's actually uh, by Catherine Willis Perchie. Some of you may be familiar with it. That's why I mentioned her name. She says, We know full well that the work begun in that manger is not yet complete. Christmas is, for the time being, a feast of light juxtaposed with darkness. We brighten our sanctuary with candles, but the night persists beyond these walls. Though we wipe our tears away to join in the Yuletide celebration, we are still a people who mourn. So true, so true. And it's against all of that darkness that the hope shines even brighter. And it's a hope that motivates service for the Lord. You think of those Christian slaves. The advent of Christ into the world gave them the reason to serve their masters well. And apart from this hope, we have every incentive to live selfishly. For if this life is all there is, then that's an incentive to squeeze all you can for yourself out of it. But with this hope, we have every incentive to seek God's kingdom first and to live to serve others. People of hope. And when Jesus returns in glory, he's going to reverse the tragic consequences of evil. Sin will be judged. It will be taken out of the equation. His kingdom of righteousness completely established. It will be renewal of all things, the overcoming of corruption, decay, and death. For he will fill the cosmos with his love, with his presence. In the meantime, we have the privilege of demonstrating what that will be like. We have a demonstr- an opportunity to promote his standards even now. And someone has referred to us being an advanced brigade. <laughs> an advanced brigade that are trying to bring about slowly, work towards what is ultimately right. It's like we are here to take, to reverse where we can, but at least take the bite out of the tragic results of sin. Reducing the pain. Being a people of forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, justice, mercy, and especially compassion. In short, neighbor love. 
I would think the one thing that we are not able to do that he is going to do, we are not called upon, and that is to, to be judges. We stand for justice. We are on the side of justice. Where judgment is correct, we can be on the side of that, but not to take that into our own hands. But when it comes to the other things, we're like an advance brigade. And it's the very people who have this hope who are most likely to accomplish acts of mercy on earth. C.S. Lewis, I'm sure, was right. He said, if you, if you read history, you will find out that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. <laughs> you know, they say the saying that people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Well, it's the people who are heavenly minded in a proper kind of way who are the most earthly good. I think he's right. He goes on to say, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. People have hope. And that leads to the next point. A people who are eager to do good. He says, eager to do good. Or another translation is zealous. <laughs> zealous for good works or zealous for good deeds. Eager. Zealous, I think, that would, I think that would also include having a leaning, an inclination. You know, I suggest it tells a lot about us. It tells a lot about a person. Uh, what we're inclined to do. The kinds of things you do when you're not even thinking. When you don't even have a chance to, you know, it's almost unconscious, it's almost automatic. Inclination. So you're... Uh, happens every day. You're in a, in a crowded place. What's your inclination to just think about yourself or to think about the others? Walking through a door, what's your inclination? The, these subconscious things in your life, you don't even think about them. If you're a person who is eager to that which is good, I suggest there will be an inclination. That that's the way, that's the way it goes when you're not even thinking about it. Well, that's who we are supposed to be. And it says here, he gave himself to redeem us, as we said before, to redeem us from all wickedness. But then he goes on to say, to create a certain kind of people. He gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Think of it. He set a people apart for himself, a prized, treasured possession is the idea here. That's our identity. One of the most important things that's going to influence our inclination will be our sense of identity. Who am I? And that is answered in part by whose am I? And here he's saying that he died, he rescued us to create a people for himself. And so that means that I, as an individual, belong to that corporate entity, a group of people set apart as his prized possession. You suppose a strong sense of our identity motivates eagerness to do good? I would think so. 
As mentioned earlier, so often it's the people with the hope of heaven who accomplish the most on earth. And I would add to that, I think it's a people who have a strong sense of who they belong to that represent him best. But a case in point of uh, accomplishing much as Christians would be the Salvation Army. Back in, um, here, here's a note about them in the U.S. I read Christianity, and that's, of course, American-based. But in an article entitled, The Army Out in Front, here's the report that in 2013, in 2013, in the U.S., they provided 58 million meals and 10 million nights of shelter. And the same year, they recorded 455 faith commitments. What an example of a group of Christians, a group that their identity is in Christ and their hope is for his coming again. What an example of them being zealous for good deeds. As followers of the Christ of Christmas, we know that the real beauty, it's not in the tree lights or any other decorations that we legitimately enjoy. Nor is it ultimately about great programs that big churches can do. Wonderful that they can, but that's not the most important beauty. But the real beauty is in what really happened when the grace of God appeared. The Christ event itself, that's the beauty. And as we follow him, we have the privilege of making, of making that beauty even more outstanding, shall we say, enhancing the beauty, adorning it. We do so especially when we are people who are continuing to be taught these things, to say no and to say yes. Uh, people who are thinking of our ultimate destiny, a people of hope. In the context of hopelessness, we stand out. And out of both of the above, a people that are zealous, eager, inclined to do that which is good. So let's make this the beauty of Christmas even more beautiful because we adorned the doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we have been called to something so wonderful, so beautiful. Now it's up to us to enhance that, to demonstrate that, to show that, to be part of what you use, to beautify what's already there. And so, Father, we pray that we might go from here not forgetting what the real meaning is, but then to take others into this web. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.